0: If you go a little bit uh, back into the history of the Old Testament, uh, you remember the Babylonians came in and overthrew the children of Israel. That's how you get Daniel. Uh, Daniel and uh, uh, his friends over in the wrong place the wrong season, but so much of what it means to stand firm in your faith in a hostile country, and Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do that very well. Uh, But that kind of started... Basically, the fulfillment of prophecy, where God had sent His prophets and said, "You know, Israel, if you don't stay faithful to Me, I'm going to protect you in your land as long as you are faithful to Me. But as soon as you are unfaithful to Me, uh, I'm going to remove My hand of protection and blessings from you, and I'm going to let others come in and overthrow you." And you heard uh, Bo talk about the divided kingdom uh, on Sunday. That uh, that after Solomon. Uh, You had had Saul, then you had David, then you had Solomon, then you had a divided kingdom. You had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, The northern kingdom, uh, man was com- kind of a- almost always walking away from the Lord and venturing down the wrong path. And man, there's just few and far between in seasons of revival that you saw in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom of Israel, the Judea area, is what we refer to. And remember those areas because we're going to talk about them. The northern, we're going to get all the way back to them here, here again in a second. Then you had the southern kingdom that, uh, you know, they lasted a little bit longer, 100 years or more. Uh, they, they, because they were more faithful, you know. When, anytime you read through First and Second Chronicles or First and Second Kings, and it says this king came uh, to lead the people and to led them in revival and renewed worship, you can almost be assured that was a king in the Southern Kingdom. And sometimes you, as you're reading through First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, uh, then you start hearing them referred to as Israel and Judea. And you might think those are the same people. Israel oftentimes then referred to the northern kingdom and Judea referred to the southern kingdom We're talking about Jerusalem and stuff like that. So you can lose your way, but you don't have to know that and uh, you don't have to lose your way. You you read through that and the southern kingdom stayed much more faithful. But you remember Babylon came in and overthrew the children of Israel, took Daniel off. Uh, That was the Babylonians. And then uh, in the process of that, uh, eventually the Persians came in. And overthrew the Babylonians. Okay, if you think of the Babylonians, think of modern-day Iraq. Think of Persians. Think more towards Iran. Okay, the Persians are—they came in and overthrew uh, the Babylonians. Now, the interesting thing is uh, the Persians, Persians were much more, much more gracious uh, to the children of Israel uh, than uh, uh, than the Babylonians were and then some that followed them were. And what happened under the Persian rule is that's when some of the children of Israel were allowed to come back and Nehemiah rebuilds the wall, and Ezra uh, reinstitutes worship. And you remember all that? Ezra leading the worship, Nehemiah building the wall. That was the Persians that allowed them to come back. And so let's pick it up as, as we come to Malachi. Here's where we are. Many of the children of Israel are back in their place. The, uh, the temple has been rebuilt, the temple has been rebuilt, but it's nowhere near its former glory back under Solomon's day when Solomon built the temple. It's nowhere near. The people are worshiping again, but they are nowhere near as faithful as they were back in the days of David and Solomon and even earlier days. They just weren't. As a matter of fact, much of their worship was considered hollow. And so when we come to Malachi, uh, in other words, they would come and make offerings, but they would offer animals that were supposed to be unblemished they would bring their lame lamb. They would bring their spotted, uh, you know, in other words, instead of doing what they did in the days of Solomon and in the early days of faithful worship to God, they were told to bring their best. Does that make sense? When they looked at their livestock, when they looked at the offerings, they were supposed to bring their first and their best, and they would. Well, guess what? Later they begin to say, you know what? God's not going to notice if, if I bring him my three-legged lamb to sacrifice, if I bring him the offering that doesn't matter, if I bring him the leftovers instead of the first fruits, anybody in here do that at all? Be careful as we begin to mock and laugh at children of Israel how often do we do the same thing we bring what's left over we bring that what we don't care about if we can if we don't have anything if we have a little money left over at the end of the month then I might bring it to God or if not I'll just roll it over bring a little next month and so we want to be careful because we can be very much like this and I will tell you much like God although he loves us and you'll never lose your salvation there is a season in Malachi God says bring me the whole tithe if you want me to if you want to prove this is the one way you can test God is with what you give him, your sacrifices and your offerings. And then God says, listen, I'll remove my hand of blessing. So when we come to Malachi and uh, the Old Testament ends, the children of Israel, many of them are back in their homeland. They are worshiping again. The temple has been rebuilt. The wall has been rebuilt. The temple's not of its former glory. Okay and their sacrifices and their worship is there but it's not a full devotion and commitment. And so as we come to let me just read a couple of things for you. Go to Matthew chapter uh, excuse me Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6. Um, and this is God kind of giving them a warning telling them there's going to be a hard day, there's going to be a difficult day. He said see Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6. It says see I will send a prophet Elijah to you Now, Elijah's long gone, okay? A prophet like Elijah to you uh, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children back to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So what is God warning them even in the last two verses of uh, Malachi? He's saying, hey, be careful. He says, I've let you come back. He goes, but you, you, you're giving me some hollow worship. You better be careful, or I'll allow them to come in and strike the land. They'll bring total destruction. Now, if you go to uh, 63 AD, uh, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens under Roman rule, man. They destroy everything again. But that's not really what we're talking about here. Now, jump back to chapter before, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi says, "I will send." God says, "I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me." Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Okay, so now, as the Old Testament closes with Malachi, there's a there, there's a prophecy about staying faithful, or will destroy it totally. Number two is there will be a person who comes in the spirit of Elijah to point the way to the Lord, all right? And then we go into what is referred to as the silent years. That's 400 years, about 400 B.C., really a little bit before that, all the way till Christ... Christ comes that we see in John chapter 1. That's where we're going to finish today. So let me just give you a couple of highlights of what took place in what is referred to as the silent years. Um, The Persians, uh, after the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, the Persians uh, pretty much uh, uh, oversaw everything that was going on for a a long time. And uh, so if you just want to put dates on this, from about 100 years before the close of the Old Testament... about a hundred years into the intertestamental period, okay? That's under Persian rule, all right? The Persians ruled, and you had, you know, the Medes and the Persians, and you had Cyrus the king, and you remember many of those names, those were all good people, and they were pretty pretty good to the children of Israel, but then after the Medes and the Persians come, um, who knows which kingdom came next? Huh? The Greeks showed up. The Greeks showed up. And uh, a little guy named uh, Alexander the Great. Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great came in and basically began to overthrow everything. He beat back the Persians. Uh, He drove back everybody. And essentially, Alexander the Great, in a very short time, uh, basically ruled the world. And the one thing that we know about Alexander the Great is, uh, and by the way, he was gracious to the children of Israel. He was gracious to God's people. And uh, here's what I want you to hear as we walk through this. Even in the midst of this intertestamental period, there are some things that happen. As we talk about the kingdoms that are, that are going to rule during this time, that pave the way not only for Christ to come spiritually, but for the gospel to spread Okay, the first thing that we need to know about Alexander the Great, and if you, uh, and he probably, he came in, he, he, I think he conquered in 332 BC. 332 BC, so 332 years uh, BC. He, when he overthrew, he was trained personally and studied with Aristotle. Anybody of you, y'all know that name? Okay, he was very adept at Greek literature and wisdom and Greek philosophy and Greek politics. And he absolutely thought it was the high point of the world, okay? So one of the things that Alexander the Great did when he would overthrow a kingdom and a land, he would bring in Greek culture. Now, he was very accommodative, like to the Israelites. He says, you can keep practicing how you want to, you can keep living how you want to, but you will learn Greek because that is going to be the trade language, all right? Anybody ever heard of Koine A. Greek? goes back to Alexander the Great. One of the beautiful things about the trade language right in there in the Children of Israel area is that they all, even the Hebrews, now many of them and probably most of them by the time of Christ spoke Greek, not Hebrew. Because we're going to see something else that happens because of this. So he wanted Greek philosophy. And you can see there are times that the Apostle Paul uses some Greek uh, uh, rhetorical skills and Greek reasoning skills as he's making his argument uh, in the Areopagus and different places like that. And so I want you to know Greek thought had a lot to do with it. He wanted them to have Greek thought. He wanted them to have Greek dress and Greek culture and understand Greek politics. And so Alexander the Great came in, and he was very good to the children of Israel. Now, he uh, I think he overthrew, basically conquered... Uh, uh, the Israel area, Persians in 332, he died just like nine years later. I mean, he did a lot in his short life. He was in his early 30s when he died, and he basically ruled the world. Now, when he died, he turned it over to his generals, okay? He had a vast kingdom, okay? He had a vast kingdom. And... Uh, over there, there were when he, there were two generals that were over there. One in the no, on the north. If you think of the of Israel, kind of going north south, can y'all picture that in your mind? Syria's up at the north, right? Syria in that area is up in the north. Egypt is down in the south. One of his generals named Ptolemy. All right, it starts with a P. If you ever read it, it's called Ptolemy, but it's P T O L A M E M Y. He was a southern general. All right. And then you had the Syrian general, was a guy named Epicurus, I think, Epicurus. And he was up there in the north. And those guys, although they were supposed to divide their kingdom, they constantly were fighting. Guess what happens? When the boss dies, everybody following him begins to fight for their territory, right? And so they begin to, well, guess who's right between Syria and Egypt? Israel. And so, you know, if, if one was winning, then they would be dominated here at The children of Israel wanted to be be ruled over by Ptolemy because Ptolemy was very gracious. He was much like Alexander. But ultimately, uh, uh, the guy in the north, Epicurus, he's something, okay? That doesn't really matter, all right? Here's what you need to know about him is ultimately he ended up dominating and overseeing all the children of Israel and overrunning all the children of Israel. You don't necessarily need to know his first name But he gave himself a second name. And his second name was Epiphany. Who knows what an epiphany means? It's it's a manifestation of God. Basically, he said, I am God. Now, how many of you think that could cause a problem if you've got this group of people that are worshiping the one true God and it's not you? Pretty bad stuff, right? So basically, he came in, and uh, uh, they wanted to be led by Ptolemy, but they couldn't. Um, and then uh, as, as they begin to journey through and, and roll through, he, he said, you can't basically worship your one true God. He basically said, you got to worship me. All right, got to worship me. And they were like, no, 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 we're not going to worship you. And uh, he said, yeah, you're going to worship me. And then as you journey through a, a couple of more years, uh, then you get another general up in the Galilee area uh, called Seleucis, Seleucid. And you've probably heard those. They're called the Seleucids. And they kind of follow him. And uh, Seleucid basically said, you're not, you're not going to worship anybody but Zeus. All right. Then you got a real problem. Then somebody following Seleucid, all right, comes in and does the unthinkable. Does anybody know what the unthinkable is? Slaughter a pig on the Jewish altar. That is not kosher, right? And he basically goes in, and when he does that, he also basically wipes out. The priestly line just basically wipes it out. When he does that, then you have kind of a... Sometimes it takes hard things to get people to become faithful again. You ever ever notice that? I've noticed that as a pastor, that sometimes when someone goes through something difficult, that's when they really cry out to God. And so he goes through and wipes out the royal priestly, priestly line. And he basically says, You're gonna worship Zeus, they sacrifice the people. Well, there develops this remnant, this remnant that are faithful, if you want to call it, who begin to say, man, we have accommodated the world. And by the way, the children of Israel had. They had said, okay, we'll be a little bit Persian, we'll be a little bit Greek, we'll be a little bit of this, or we'll be a little bit of that. The guy who led this group uh, was a priest. So they kind of retreated and they begin to study the law and its original words and its original testament. And his name was Matthias, or Mattathias Mathathia, or something like that. You don't need to know that name because it's the next name you're going to know. And he begins to lead this revolt. And he's going, he's attacking the Seleucids, he's fighting. They have retreated up into the hills and they're, in, they're embarking on what is referred to as guerrilla warfare. Right? They're they're coming down and they're attacking and they're going back in the hills. They're coming down, they're attacking, they're going back in the hills. And then he dies, but he has five sons. But the one you've heard of is called Judas Maccabeus. Anybody ever heard that name? Okay. Maccabeans. Name after him. You know what, anybody know what the Hebrew word for Maccabeans means? The hammer. So he's named Judas the Hammer, and he came in and would light them up, all right? He fought like crazy. He fought like cats and dogs. And so every time he could see a weakness, he and his men would come down, and they would wipe a whole group of uh, uh, basically the Greek army out. And all they wanted, they didn't want their whole territory. They just, wanted, they just wanted to re-consecrate the temple. Does that make sense? They wanted to come back. They wanted to be able to sacrifice. That's what they wanted to do. And so they have all these battles uh, time and time again. And uh, then eventually Judas uh, Maccabeus, he realized, I need some help. So he kind of cuts a deal with this fledgling little empire named Rome. As they had begun to send some people over saying, hey, he goes, you know, if you'll help me, we kind of both want the same thing. He said, listen, if you'll make sure that our people can worship the way we want to worship, we can work together to defeat these people. And that's essentially exactly what happens. And now we're into about... 165-160 165, 160 BC. Okay, so we moved from 400 to the 160s. Now, two other groups begin to develop in that same time. Remember when the when the pig has been offered uh, to Zeus, basically on the Jewish altar, and you have this group, the maccabeans that have pulled away and said, "We're going to be faithful." Uh, the, there's one group that begins to develop in the children of Israel, and they start developing about 167 B.C. They are, they are Jews that are totally immersed in the Greek culture, and they want to influence the government. They would be the wealthy and the aristocrats. They don't like what's happening, but they don't reject Greek society and Greek thought. Those guys were referred to as the Sadducees. Anybody ever heard of the Sadducees? All right, remember if you're coming in the New Testament when Jesus is is talking to the Sadducees and dealing with the Sadducees, they are the upper crust, all right? They are are the Washington, D.C. people. They are the politicians. They are the ones that had most become, although they were a little bit Jewish, they were way Greek. They were the ones that could talk in the circles uh, with all of the big dog uh, uh, Greeks. Does that make sense? And that's the way they wanted to use their influence and play their influence. They were always looking for political favor. In other words, when when Judas the Maccabeans uh, said, we're going to start attacking you from the hills, they had withdrawn. The Sadducees started going trying to make treaties. Does that make sense? They wanted to make a deal. Just give us some political favor. Does that make sense? So you had two different groups. Up in the mountains, remember those were the faithful people, there was a little group of people called the Pharisees. They begin to develop. All right? The Pharisees begin to say, you know what? We've got to go back to the Bible. That was kind of their idea. It would be the Old Testament Bible. So they begin to codify. When we get back into the promised land, we are going to be faithful. Alright, we're going to be faithful. And so they begin to codify all the laws and they begin to look through the Old Testament, particularly the first five books of the Bible, and they came up with, I believe, the number 613 laws. Alright? In other words, to keep us, to keep you from offending God and breaking God's laws, you had the Pharisees. So now do you understand where the Pharisees and the Sadducees started? The Sadducees were the, were the guys of upper crust. They were probably wealthy business owners. They had fully accepted the Greek society. Um, when, uh, uh, when they finally went in, and uh, uh, the guy named uh, Epiphany, the, 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 the general name Epiphany, he goes in and sacrifices the pig on the altar, desecrates the temple. They probably didn't take up arms, they probably went to the boss. Does that make sense? And they tried to make a a deal. The Pharisees, they were up in the mountains basically with the Maccabeans, saying, we're not putting up with this, right? And so they start making laws. So that's why you get two different people. That's why when we come to the New Testament, the Sadducees and Pharisees aren't really friends. How many of you know that? Why? Because the Pharisees thought they were what? Cop-outs. You're selling out, right? The Sadducees said, about the time we get to a place where we're making a deal where they're going to let us have our altar back, you come in and kill a bunch of soldiers, and so they hate them. Does that make sense to you? So they both were wanting the same thing, all right? They were just wanting it from different perspectives, all right? So it's in this time that a lot of important stuff happens. Then if you drop down a little bit, oh, by, by the way, and about in this time, in the second, moving into the first century, Remember what the common language is now? Greek. Greek. So you have a bunch of people that are growing up now in a Greek society and the kids and the grandkids, uh, are you familiar with what happens when maybe, maybe you have a first generation Chinese and second generation, third generation, you take the young, they're speaking English. If they're not getting Chinese at the house, or if they're not getting Korean at the house, so guess what? So, you have 70 translators who look at this beautiful wealth of Old Testament literature that is written in the Hebrew, and none of the kids can read it. So, what do they do? They translate the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. Does anybody know what that translation is called? The Septuagint. All right, the Septuagint. So if you've heard of the Septuagint, you might, want to, you might see it in different places in the notes in your Bible. You might want to write this down. LXX. All right? LXX. I'm going to tell you what that means here in a second. So if you're ever looking in the note in your Bible and say this comes from the, from the LXX, okay, that's not some Olympic Games. All right? That's the Septuagint. The Septuagint, basically septum, means seventy. It is said that 70 scribes and translators went in for 70 weeks and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. So we're just talking about the Old Testament, okay? Into the Greek. So these scholars translated. It was in this period, why? Because there was a need. What was the need? Even the Hebrew kids spoke Greek. Does that make sense? And that's why you always want to see that we're speaking in the common language of the day. So I want you to know when someone says, and I've had people come to me, they'll go off to camps and tell me the King James language is the only one that, is, uh, uh, that, that you should preach out of. Shane's one of those big guys. And I'm like, I can't understand it, neither can our, kid, can our kids, and it seems like we fought for our independence a while back. But, but here's the point, here's the point. When you come to the New Testament and the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, almost 100% of those quotations come from the Septuagint. They don't come from the Hebrew Old Testament. I want to say that again. Almost 100% of the quotations in the New Testament by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, by Luke, and every uh, John and every other New Testament writer, almost 100% are quotes from the Septuagint. Why would they quote from the Septuagint? Because who they're teaching to and who they're talking to are speaking Greek, not Hebrew. Does that make sense? That also encourages us that when you look at the translation that you have, while we don't refer to it as inerrant, because we know that goes back to the original manuscripts, it absolutely is inspired, okay? It is inspired by God. Now, the original manuscripts are without error, but that's why when you come to translation differences, I preach from the NIV. I will tell you this, if you ever wonder, why does the pastor preach from the NIV? It's not my favorite translation. I will tell you, my favorite translation is the new american standard that's my favorite translation let me ask you a question of all those guys all of you guys in here that have a bible with you how many of you have a new american standard okay you are the exception not the rule because if you look that is a dying translation niv is still the number one owned by far and the number one purchased, I'll tell you the one that's closing in on it. It's the ESV. How many? Anybody in here have the ESV? Okay, that's cl- how many of you have the NIV? All right, very good. And so you see, it's still the number one. So why do I use the NIV? It's the one most people have. And if someone's going to take my notes home, and they're going to open their Bible to do some study i want it to look like what i showed them up there okay i figured if we're mature enough you probably bought a new american standard because you wanted a good translation and we know that we are going to be in the front of the line in heaven because that's like i said almost always jesus quoted from the septuagint the other times he quoted from the new american standard and um, but anyway, so some good things are happening. Does that make sense? Some good things are happening. You get the Pharisees. Who were they? They were the ones up there. that were, They were separatists. They were, they were sitting there writing everything that was wrong with modern day Judaism. Does that make sense? Guess what? That's why when, when you come to the New Testament, Jesus actually, when he teaches, he agrees with most of what the Pharisees believe. What did he attack the Pharisees for? Their hearts, their hollow legalism. You, you look at the Pharisees. They believed in angels and demons and Satan and spirit. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in, in the Old Testament is authoritative for our lives. Let me tell you what. They had it right. And most often Jesus didn't say, oh, you're wrong. If he's saying you're wrong, he's talking to the Sadducees. Because now you take the Sadducees, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected all the prophets. Well, why would guys who had punted tradition, who had punted morality, who had totally immerse themselves in the Greek culture of philosophy and humanity, And lust after the flesh, why would you reject the prophets? Because they told you how to live and who to sleep with and who to marry and who not to do and what to do. Does that make sense? So guess why the Sadducees rejected everything past the first five books of the Bible? They had to hang on to something or they weren't even Jews, right? They just said, give us the first five books of the Bible. And then the Pharisees said, well, basically we can come up with our 1600, 613 things that are wrong just by seeing what the Sadducees do, because whatever they do is probably a sin, right? And so that's how these groups begin to fight each other. And they begin to argue. They agreed in the New Testament on one thing. What did they agree on? There's only one time you see the Pharisees and Sadducees agree on one thing the trial and trials of Jesus. So you have this far-left liberal group and this far-right conservative group that agree on one thing, del- delivering Jesus Christ into the hands of sinful men to have Rome basically nail him to a cross for our good. So as you journey through the intertestamental period, you get the Pharisees, you get the Sadducees, you get a common language, so we then remember what I said. Basically... The Maccabeans, Judas the Maccabeans cut cut the deal. He basically overthrows, basically gets Rome to help him, and they win back Israel, Israel, basically Jerusalem. And then in 63, Rome basically kicks all the Greeks out. And so Rome begins, so we come in about 60, 70 years before Jesus arrives on the scene in the New Testament. Now Rome is in charge. Does that make sense? Now, when Rome came in, guess what? Man, they had a great ally in these Maccabeans who were up in the hills. And so they said, hey, dude, once we drive you out, we'll give you control. You can run your thing. Now, you're going to be Romans, but we'll give you freedom. And what does that mean? They were going to tax you, but you can still have your sacrifices. And there was what was referred referred to as a Pax Romano. Anybody know what that means historically? The Peace of Rome. They brought in a season of peace. And it lasted from about 70 B.C. to about 70 A.D. when they come back in and destroy the temple. All right? So there's a Peace of Rome. So here's what has happened setting the stage for Jesus to come. You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have a common language, you have a trade language, then the Romans come in and develop a peace. Not only that, we have the Old Testament translated into the Greek for common language, and guess what the Romans were good at building? Roads. Well, how do you think the gospel traveled? Right up those roads, taking the language they were given by the Greeks, walking on the roads that were built by the Romans, delivering the message that was given by God. So with all the silent years, guys, God was at work. And guys, and there are times and seasons in our lives that God's silent. You ever felt like that? God, what do I need to do? Talk to me. And I tell you, don't ever question whether God's working in the background. A lot of times we want to see Him on the screen. We want to wake up to the vision at night. We want to to be able to open our Bible up and go, Yep, I'm getting rich tomorrow. God's always working. God is always working. And so it's that season that God has paved the way through culture, He set up the two groups that were going to agree because Rome by itself would not have crucified Jesus were it not for the two Jewish groups, the liberals and the fundamentalists agreeing to put him to the cross. The gospel would not have spread had the roads not spread as fast, had the roads not been built. Can't you see God orchestrating this? I mean, okay, and this I'm not, I don't play God often, and I won't play much at all. Okay, now we've got the language we need. Now we need the roads. Time for Rome to show up. That's the way God works, guys, sometimes in our lives. And let me ask you a question. Do you think the Maccabeans saw that? They were probably wondering, where is God? Right? You Think about some of the, the priestly line that was slaughtered. When the Seleucids came in, when they offered the sacrifice of the pig on the altar, they're going, what are you doing? Where's God? Guys, God was all over it. Because one of the things the Maccabeans did is they also reinstituted a legitimate priestly line. Took out the false priestly line. Now, jump to John chapter 1. Oh, let me give you another thing because you need to know this. This is this way you can witness. In 164 B.C., that was the date... 164 B.C., that was the date that the Romans and the Maccabeans basically took back over Jerusalem again. Okay? When the Maccabeans went in and the priest, remember they had reinstituted the right priestly line, when they went back into the temple, they began to look around and they they found only one jar of oil worthy of one day of burning the candles. And they lit it And they prepared the way for fresh oil, blessed oil, to show up so the candle that was always supposed to be lit, a little seven-candle thing. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. The menorah. They had enough oil for one day. And the only oil, you couldn't just use any common oil. It had to be blessed oil. You want to know why? You've heard in the Catholic Church the blessed water and stuff, the consecrated water. It had to be blessed oil. The high priest, the priest, had to bless the oil. It had to go through everything. It had to be the purest of the pure. When they got in there, one of the first things they wanted to do is light the candles. But they found only one jar of oil that was certified, that was left over, and they began to pray. And it took eight days for the cleansing and the purification for the oil to get there and to show up. But that one day's worth of oil burned for eight days. And that is why the menorah that you look up has seven candles. One in the middle, all right, three on each side. That's the menorah, but that's not the Hanukkah. See, you probably have never seen a menorah. You just think you have. Those were only allowed to be in the temple, and only the high priest touched those. The one you probably see has nine candles, and the one in the middle is extended. That's called the helper candles. The four on each side, those represent the eight days that God allowed that oil to burn when they got back into the temple. That is actually called the Hanukkah. And so now when you roll into the season of Hanukkah, you will know we're pointing right back to the intertestamental period when the Maccabeans and the Romans went back in, found one little jar of oil that was only supposed to last one day that could only be lit by the priest. Now. So if you want to see the difference, you can Google uh, menorah. Pull up the images. How will you tell the difference? If you see one candle stuck up above the rest of the candles, that's the Hanukkah. That's not the menorah. Most people will call it a menorah. And it's the four candles on each side that represent the eight days the oil burned. Does that make sense? And the middle one was the one they used to light it if you see one with seven and they're all level that's a real menorah that's a real menorah and that's the one that they would only have in the temple does that make sense does that kind of make sense my guess is you can probably find and what's interesting today is the reason why that was so special to the children of israel is what were they fighting for so they would be separate now apart from christmas Hanukkah is almost the most inculcated uh, holiday you can ever imagine. And that's not how it started. It was them trying to gain it all back. Does that make sense? So anyway, now when you go through Hanukkah, and when you go through, y'all like that bright light? That means Jesus is about to show up, okay? So let's go to John chapter 1. So anyway, I, I, well, i tell you what, y'all, y'all go to John chapter 1. Let me start with Isaiah the prophet. Just listen before we get to John. Isaiah, Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5 says, A voice of the one calling. In the wilderness he calls, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Thank you, Rome. Every valley shall be raised, and every mountain uh, shall be made low. He says, The rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places will become plain. Thank you, Greeks. He says, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Even in the intertestamental period, which is referred to as the silent years, God was speaking. God was preparing the way. Now jump to John chapter one. John chapter one, pick it up in verse 19. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites uh, to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. Let me tell you what the children of Israel were ready for—a Messiah. The people were ready for a Messiah. It says they asked him, "Then who are you? Are you Elijah?" Remember what Malachi said: "There'll be one coming in the spirit of Elijah." He said, "Are you Elijah?" He says, "No, I'm not Elijah." He said, "Are you a prophet?" "No, I'm not even a prophet." Finally, said, "Well, who are you? Give us the answer, uh, or take back those things that, uh, or, or take you back to those who sent us." He says, "What do you say about yourself?" John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, "I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord." Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him. Uh, questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, not Elijah, or not the prophet? He says, I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one. By the way, among you, Jesus was already there. They just didn't know it yet. Jesus was among you, uh, stands one, uh, who you do not know yet. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptized. And look at verse 29. Then on the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said to him, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The language is right. The hearts of the people were right. Now you remember, the hearts of the people responded well to Jesus, right? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were having their whole structural power system challenged. They're the ones that didn't respond well. So when we talk about the intertestamental period, a lot of stuff happened. Don't ever forget that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for these guys. God, I'll throw a lot of information at them. I pray that they can just hold on to what they need to hold on. And I I, I, I pray, God, that even they would know in those silent seasons in their own personal life, even sometimes those tough seasons, when it seems like they're losing, they would always trust and know that you're still at work and you're preparing the way for your victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Y'all have a great day. See y'all.